Thank you for tuning in to the WAM podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hello, everyone. I'm Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this edition of Women in Manufacturing. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring or expand manufacturing in the U.S. I also run a global supply chain manufacturing consultancy, where we help clients with global supply chain projects and where I also do expert witness work. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women in business and ask them to share their experiences. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Eileen Small. Eileen is currently a market research consultant for Mesa Frankfurt USA for their fashion and apparel trade show events. But she has a long background in textiles and apparel, and we'll be talking about that today. And I find this conversation fascinating. Textiles is such an important industry and really unique and some things that I think we can learn from, from Eileen today. So for anyone in business to learn about trade shows and how they're organized, as well as the textile industry, I think this will be a very important show. And we want the attendees to get the most out of it. So I want to give Eileen a chance to introduce herself and talk a little bit about her career background, and especially in the textile industry and her long history of dealing in textiles and in trade shows. So welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much, Rosemary, for having me. I'm so happy to be able to talk to you and all of your listeners out there. Yeah, my background spans quite a few decades. You know, I was just watching a show on TV today who said the gentleman on there wrote a book who was talking about embrace your experience and your age. So I'm going to do that and not try and hide in our long experience time. So I started in the 80s, actually. I have a background in textile technology. I went to FIT. It was a great experience. So let me stop you for a minute. FIT, everybody may not know. That's the Fashion Institute. Institute of Technology based in New York City. Exactly. And it was a great experience, a great school. And from there, I actually started my textile career through a converter Uh, was called Tandler Textile. And I'll just preface that by saying, back then, the world was a much bigger place. You know, we didn't have the internet. We had to figure things out in a much more, you know, thinking outside the box kind of way. So I was hired to help work with the sales team and source piece goods. I set up a library. And at that time, my boss said, if you find a great place to go, get on a plane and go. So I actually traveled the world in my 20s. You name it, I've probably been there. If we thought it was an interesting potential place for acquiring peace goods, you know, we went. When you talk about peace goods, you're talking about fabrics, textiles? Yes, specifically about fabrics. We call that, you know, peace goods. And then, so I separated by textile manufacturing and garment manufacturing. People say apparel's apparel manufacturing, but we talk garment manufacturing. So yes, my job was to source piece goods, fabrics from around the world for a converting operation. And just to explain what a converter is very briefly, which there aren't too many around today, they've kind of like gone by the wayside. A converter was really a very important aspect of sourcing for brands that were coming up, especially in women's wear. If you recall, it was really the explosion in the 70s where women went back to work in a very significant way. So my first 
job, which I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, was at Liz Claiborne, really, after I left Tandler Textile. And Liz was one of the first to, you know, really focus in on how to dress women not looking like men. And that's where, you know, American sportswear was really born. That's so interesting you say that because when I was in college in our communications class, we were told that women should sort of dress in boxy suits and, right, you know, right. kind of, <laughs> yeah, kind of mini men. Right? right. And so, and Liz Claiborne was a great brand to look for sort of suit jackets and, you right. know, women's suits, skirts and jackets that went together. That was sort of the uniform of the day in the right. early eighties yeah. for sure. And, and yeah. we actually figured out how to soften it up too, you know, so pairing it with prints, your printed skirts and dresses and still being professional looking. But back then, Brands like that, they had an idea, but they didn't know where to source. So converters were really the people that, you know, the companies that went around the world to find the piece good sourcing. So the Liz team, the design team would come to a company where I first worked and they would come with their ideas. We're looking for cotton, silk, rayon, wool flannel jackets. And we then our job was to do the worldwide sourcing. So that was part of my job. As I said, I got to travel the world and we would bring back all that sourcing and then work with brands like Liz or Chouse or, you know, any of those women's wear companies early in the 80s like that. So I was at this converter for about seven years. As I say, it was a education I could never have paid for because, as I said, when you are going to places like Egypt, Indonesia, Thailand, and then saying, you know, there's opportunities in South and Central America and just traveling to all those places, in addition to Europe, which was very important to source. And then, of course, the explosion of Asia. I do want to back up for a second, though. When I first started there, we did do quite a bit of business with domestic suppliers as well. You know, we worked on a lot of cotton piece goods. There was dyeing and finishing, you know, in North and South Carolina. Yeah, I was just going to say, so the fabrics would then come back to the U.S. and were manufactured here at the time? Yes. So you pretty much would, you had a choice. You could bring in piece goods that were gray goods. We call them grayish goods. So they were unfinished, undyed. And then you would send them to the dyer and finisher in, say, North or South Carolina, rather. Carolina. And then you would put them into the colors that you would decide were, you know, the seasonal colors. And then you would stock those piece goods. And so brands that were just kind of starting up, they didn't have the opportunity to buy in big numbers at that time. So you would, you know, you would stock goods and they would buy a couple hundred, a couple thousand, whatever were the needs were of the season, you know, but quite frankly, women's wear business wasn't really exploding at that time. So that industry grew exponentially within 10 years from when I started to, you know, that first 10 years of my career, it was bam, you know, I mean, I used to buy denim 50,000 yards at a time from U.S. denim suppliers. So I saw the change happen from where it was a very, very vital industry there. And then it kind of just, it obviously changed a lot. You know, it got expensive. So most of the production of the actual garments then moved to Asia during that period of time, right? I saw at one point, I think 95% of the garment production was outside of the U.S. So we really lost that industry in the 80s and early 90s, I think. Exactly. I can't remember the documentary, the name of the documentary that was, you know, out in the last few years, but 
it went from the New York City Garment Center being like almost literally, I don't know, I want to say close to 90% of all the manufacturing to flipping 95 overseas and only maybe a five or 10% left here, you know? So yes, so peace goods were manufactured, you know, died and finished outside of, you know, there were some obviously New York, New Jersey area, but a lot of it was down South. And then the manufacturing was in Manhattan, you know, in the garment district. Well, yeah, I mean, today there's still a pretty good sized garment district in Manhattan too. I think there's a lot of specialty. Okay. A lot of specialty goods. I know I've talked to another garment manufacturer in Manhattan that makes high-end women's apparel. She shifted to PPE during the pandemic, but I think there's still a garment district there that's fairly viable. The luxury market, I think, fares a little bit better. Moderate to, you know, contemporary to better sportswear, you know, is really pretty much overseas for the most part. When it went overseas, so it didn't go to China first, right? I mean, China was still under a lot of restrictions until it ascended to the WTO in 2001. But prior to that, was the production mostly in Hong Kong or where did it go first? Absolutely. So when I used to travel to Asia, the garment manufacturing, we always, we had a Hong Kong office actually. So a lot was done in Hong Kong. In regards to peace goods, when I first started sourcing as well, China was way down on the list. Our first go-to place was Korea because Korea really had a developed textile industry, much more high-end quality if you were going to be in Asia. The next place to develop was Taiwan. And when I was at Liz, we really spent a lot of time on the ground in these countries, specifically a lot of it in Taiwan, where we actually trained the textile suppliers to come up to the quality standards that we needed. We developed, not me, but there was amazing qualified people in the company who wrote the uh, manuals and for all the quality standards. And so we worked very, very diligently to get those mills up to our standards. And we were lucky that we had such a great amount of customers that we could give them a lot of exclusive business, you know? So, and then, then what kind of happened after that? China took off after Korea and Taiwan were really much more developed. Ah, Okay. So in the development of the industry across Asia was luxury goods weren't necessarily there, right? I mean, didn't luxury goods go to more Italy and okay. Absolutely. So what we would do is we always had a matrix, you know, about how we were going to plan what was needed. And we knew that certain items, there was no scrimping on whatsoever. So we worked with Italy, France, sometimes Spain, you know, a few that were, you know, definitely luxury suppliers. And we knew that certain garments were not going to make the same margin that other styles were going to make. So everything was a balancing act that, you know, listen, we're going to take less margin on these wool flannel jackets or this particular, you know, dress style, because there was a lot of cut making, you know, trim to it. We needed to add, you know, some accessories, things like that. But we knew that we would make it up with other styles. So it was always a balance. And yes, and Italy always was able to do small minimums. The problem with Italy for us at Liz Claiborne was they couldn't make enough of enough. (laughs) So you always wanted to, you know, when you're in sportswear, you also have to be very aware of the color matching, okay? I want to stop you there too, because I, 
a sportswear doesn't mean your gym clothes. Sportswear oh, has different, oh. yeah, <laughs> different definition. Yeah. Sportswear is your sort of your casual plus, you know, go to work, you know. So I keep using Liz as my example, but, you know, we had divisions that were Liz wear, which was very denim driven, but it was always with, it was a whole complete. So sportswear is really your whole complete outfit, you know, from your top. And it's more the normal stuff that you would wear every day. It's not the high end dress wear. It's just normal. Well, sort of- yes. And, but we did have a collection division as well. So we had okay. Liz wear, we had Liz sport. We had an Liz collection. So it kind of ran the gamut. So if you were in, if you were that woman who was, you know, up and coming and becoming the vice president, the president, you know, the CEO or whatever, you may have gone to the collection division, which was the higher end, you know, like the silks we would get from Hong Kong and, you know, places like that beautiful Italian qualities as well. But we mix up, you know, and Italy as well had other fabrics that they really weren't considered luxury, but they were mixtures. They were wool blends or they were, you know, combinations to make novelty jackets. You know, you have your little Chanel type tweeds or things like that, you know, that you could have in a certain price category. So all of the brands with under that umbrella were able to source everywhere from Europe to Asia to the United States. I mean, really, most of the denim and the time I began came from the USA. Oh, and I think today there's almost no denim here. It's no, all overseas, right? There's just a few mills. And I think that, you know, those brands that are able to support them, kudos, because it's not easy to be surviving in the price war that happens out there right now. Yeah. It's my understanding that there is kind of a, a difference in the economics of the industry. So textile manufacturing today is by and large very automated. There aren't very many people working in textile factories because it, the machines are the ones that knit the fabrics or you know put the various fabrics together. On the other hand, apparel manufacturing or garment manufacturing is very different because it requires people to sew things and they're big sewing shops. So the economics of it are quite different in terms of, you know, what industry would develop. And that means, at least to me, and the things that we've done, the kind of research that we've done at the Reshoring Institute is that the big textile manufacturers around the world, whether it's in Asia or Europe or the U.S. and the Carolinas, don't have the big economic factor of having a lot of labor. So through automation, they can compete more easily. And some of that industry stayed in the Carolinas because of that. So from my knowledge, I think a lot of what's down South has to do with, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it has a lot to do with the home sector, you know, the furniture. Uh, Okay. Like, uh, like couches and stuff. Yes. The the more industrial fabrics and definitely Uh the more workwear fabrics as well. Uh I find that any of the apparel industry fabrics that are still existing here in the United States, there's a lot more in the knitwear area than there is in the woven area. And that's because when the economy changed and everything did go overseas, you know, a lot of the equipment that existed here in the United States got sold and sent uh-huh. overseas. So it's not that we couldn't do it. It's just that, you know, it's not here. And I don't know from a apparel standpoint whether or not it makes sense for people to buy new machinery or develop new machinery here. Will the labor costs of doing that, you know, offset or amortize over time to bring things back here? You know, that's a good question that I'm not sure of. But I do know that as a buyer, 
you know, up until just a few years ago. And what I still see when I'm at my show at Text World and Apparel Sourcing is that there's really not a lot of competition for U.S.-based materials. Right. Right. There's a lot more opportunity in California, actually. You know, there definitely are people out there. And I keep saying it's more- That's so funny you say that because there's more manufacturing in California than any state in the nation. Exactly. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah, I um, believe it. All kinds of manufacturing here, but it's a difficult state to do business in. I mean, there's lots of regulations and taxes and, you know, crazy stuff going on. So even though it's much more cost effective to manufacture overseas, so many companies want to stay in California. It's very interesting. And garments, I think, are particularly in the Los Angeles area. Exactly. But let me just expand on that for a little bit. What's great about that and most designers and companies you know, would agree is that when you obviously have things here in the States or your brand is in California and you can make in California, you can be very connected to your customer. You know what they need. You can quick turn it. You can, you know, Mm -hmm. manufacture it in X amount of time. I mean, I know that's your whole, you know, the whole foundation of reshoring, which is great, but I mean, and that segues into less wastage more circularity, more sustainability. You know, we talk about those things. So if there could be more manufacturing here with flexibility, it would be a great win. But I think companies are struggling, at least, you know, in this coast, they're struggling on how to do that. You know, the world is becoming a little bit more entrepreneurial. The big brands are still out there, but the big brands are also still trying to figure out how to reduce our inventory. Instead of having those two time a year seasons, we are manufacturing constantly. How to bring new items. All seasons. Yeah, you know, that's a very interesting trend that we now wear things for all seasons. I I can clearly remember back in the 80s when, you know, we had our winter clothes and then we put those away and had our summer clothes. And (laughs) now you you wear the same things year round. The fabrics have changed and the approach has changed. Exactly. And As I said, you know, the big brands are also trying to stay relevant, but also, you know, there's a lot of obviously price competition, which brings them back into the, you know, the Far East market. But then the Far East market doesn't give them the flexibility of moving quickly, you know? Yeah, so I would think that some of the brands like Liz and some of the others are, you know, more specialty kind of lines and fashion and so forth versus makers in China that make stuff for Target or Walmart, right? So those are huge quantities and maybe lower quality versus, you know, like a Liz Claiborne that has a higher quality and a higher brand appeal. Right, right. I mean, and, you know, Liz is not the Liz today that, you know, that it was back then, but there are so many great you know, very established brands out there that, you know, are working on that balance, you know, on making sure that they don't scrimp on quality and right. still be able to provide well, I, I think the, the, the world the world of work has changed too. So, you know, I can remember Jones New York was my favorite yeah. brand and Liz and so forth. And we, you know, purchased clothes like that and suits and so forth. But Business doesn't really require that anymore. And you don't have to wear a suit, you know, to work. And now that we're working from home, it's all kinds of casual styles. It's a very interesting business that is so unique because it's so attentive to the consumer. You know, a lot of other businesses, if you were making, say, headphones or, you know, automotive parts or whatever, it's not so tied directly to fashion and to the change in seasons and that sort of thing. So apparel, you know, I used to think that the best supply chain 
interesting people in the world were in high tech. And then I started working with apparel manufacturers and holy cow, the supply chain is so much more responsive, so much more attentive to the consumer, so much more, you know, rapid change and innovative and thoughtful. I mean, it's just incredible. The amount of talent that exists in fashion in particular is just really astonishing, really astonishing. And the business models and so forth change so rapidly. It's interesting industry to watch. Well, I was going to say, you know, in order to stay competitive, the companies that are going to be, you know, keep moving forward are the ones that are going to invest in technology. They are Uh the ones that are, you know, making sure that there's a couple of things. One is the transparency and traceability of the product. So whether or not they're using blockchain technology or, you know, whatever is their supply chain matrix tools that they're using. And the consumers coming up today, they want to know, as I'm sure you've seen, or maybe I'm not sure, but, you know, out there, you can scan QR codes for products. You can find out where they got the yarn, where the farm was, you know, then where it was woven. Did they comply, you know, with guidelines? What sustainability processes did they use? Maybe what is the circularity aspects of it? So that is a major, you know, thing that the generation now coming up wants, you know, transparency. Yeah. They want to know, they want to know that whole supply chain from growing the cotton, you know, and exactly. were the Uyghurs involved in China? You know, it was a slave labor. They want to know all of that information before they purchase a, an oh. item. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Such a huge change and so much required. Exactly. I want to, because our time is limited today, and Eileen, this is fantastic. I love learning about this industry. Um, (laughs) But I want to switch to what you're doing today, because I think there's some value in our audience learning about trade shows as well. So I know you're working on that today. And, you know, from my experience, I've been to lots of trade shows over the years, all kinds of, you know, machines and industries and consumer products and so forth, and always come away thinking, Maybe I missed something. I went to the trade show and I learned some stuff, but could I have done better? And so I want to talk a little bit about trade shows and their intent and what is the best way to experience a trade show for somebody going there. I'm so glad you asked that because I have been going to, you know, all the trade shows in fashion and apparel, textiles specifically for, you know, since the beginning of time. Okay. (laughs) Since (laughs) my beginning of time. And I think I was taught very well in the beginning. I was not really allowed to go on a trip unless I was prepared. And now I see, you know, working at a text world, a lot of attendees come in. They don't know what they're looking for. They don't look ahead of time as to who the exhibitors are, et cetera, et cetera. So I get really frustrated by that. And I've experienced it with all the companies I work with because the design teams are the ones they might have an idea in their head, but they don't specifically may not know what they're looking for. But you really have to go. If you're going to go, you have to prep in advance. So I always say, you know, look, obviously everything's digital. Go to the website, go and look and see. There's usually a description of each. Actually, before show, sometimes I'll have like, you know, a preliminary seminar for attendees to talk about how oh. to prepare for a show. And really, it's like, don't come unless you have looked at the exhibitor list ahead of time. First of all, come with your idea of what's your brand? 
what it is that's missing in your collection, what it is that you need more of. Are you looking for sustainable products? Are you looking for novelties? Are you a bridal company? I worked for David's Bridal as after Liz, one of my other brands. But I had to have conversations, intense conversations with my design team, which I should be doing all the time anyway. You just don't go and think you're going to shoot from the hip, okay? Because all you do then is walk around and you get hit and miss. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah, hit and miss. And, you know, because your time is limited. And I will tell you that most people that come to a textile show are really very pressed for time. I would love for them to spend, we have a show that's three days. They come not even for a day. They come for a half a day. Before lunch, they grab lunch and go back to the office because they're totally stressed out with what their jobs are all the time. I know, been there, done that. So if you're going to go, make the most of it. There's a couple of things that you go to the trade show for. First of all, there should be, and we always have, a trend area. So the best thing to do is if you're not really sure what exhibitors to really look at from the paper, you know, or from the digital, you know, exhibitor list, because it does take time for you to look for your homework. And usually they'll tell you what their category they specialize in. So if I'm a lace person, I'm going to pull out the 20 lace people. Okay. And I'll go from there. But if not, go to the trend area. We have, or every textile show that has a trend area has curated this space with what's happening for the next season. And they will have the company name, the booth number that they're in or whatever. So you spend an hour or so walking around that area, taking notes, and then putting a list together of who you want to see. And I'll just say one other thing that people don't do is they don't strategically put their list together, like what row people are in and then up and see those. I'm in this row. They jump back and forth, you know, oh, this guy, that guy, I'm over in row Z and now I'm going to row A. It's like going to the grocery store, right? When you you go all over the place and walk back and forth and back and forth. So you really need a plan at a trade show like that. Your guys might be in rows A, B, C, and then, you know, N and Q. And that's it. And that's all you need to do. So then you're in, you're out, you feel satisfied. You saw all the trends. Let's talk about trends for just a minute too. So the fashion industry, you know, some of us got educated by watching that movie, The Devil Wears Prada, right? (laughs) And it was about a color. They talked, there was a segment in there about color and how the slightest change in a color can make billions of dollars in the industry during the season. So can you give us a little, a short tutorial on how color affects fashion also? Well, yes. I mean, well, there are trend services that are out there, you know, that do that prediction, but they really, you know, it's a historical, you know, you you look at what previous seasons have been. And then, I mean, I'm not a trend person. I respect them so much because we as brands depend on them to tell us what's happening So it's a very comprehensive plan that they come up with. I mean, they talk about, you know, they look at the economy. You know, if we're in an upswing, what color stories are going to be, you know, happening? If we're in a downswing. There's an upswing, the colors are more vibrant. Yes, exactly. You know, like that's kind of like the mentality. So there's a psychology to it all, you know? I wouldn't say that like, oh my gosh, if you're off this particular shade of teal, did you screw it up? No, it's really more or less the big picture stories of what it is. And then, uh, you know, for them, it's like coming up with combinations of what really looks new. But let's not forget the average person is not risk takers, you know? So when you get that information from trend services, you have to dial it back into 
who your customer is. If I am the hot couture customer and she's very avant-garde, she's going to take a chance on, you know, a bright orange plus yellow or whatever. Great. That's my color story, you know, but I might be more How am I tweaking my navy story? Am I adding a great teal to it? Am I going to do navy and yellow? Am I going to do what is my neutral and what am I grounding it with, you know? So the designers take in all that information, but truthfully, the trend services take into account the psychology, you know, the economy, even like they look at what's happening in the other industries, such as the car industry. That's a whole nother, you know, way you've seen what's happening in the car industry now, right? Colors, like there's not high shine on any car. It's like dullish gray. I spoke at the houseware show before the pandemic, the year before I spoke at the houseware show in Chicago. And then I went to the trade show and I was astonished. I mean, they had all this, they had a lot of presentations on color and what was the trend and so forth in kitchens. And, you know, sometimes some years it's yellow, some years it's gray. And, you know, they talked about the various colors. And then I went to the trade show and they had used the trends and colors to produce all kinds of things like mixers. You know, the trend in mixers was to go with red for a long time. They had kind of toaster ovens that were in turquoise. Yeah. I mean, it was astonishing, but yeah. apparently no depending on, as you said, in the, <laughs> yeah, as you said, in the economy and how people feel is, and then matched with the trend in colors is, you know, what consumer products are displayed for us. This season's colors, even in kitchens, you know, we went to more neutral colors and we've been through the uh, black appliance trend and we've been through the, uh, but you know, rush steel trend and all of that. Yeah. I'll just say also, so we work very closely with a trend service that puts on, you know, that helps us curate our space at our trade show. We have a great trend area as well. But part of that, it also goes back to really doing your research on consumers as well. Right. So you have to know what's happening on the street level. It's like, what the bloggers and the influencers are talking about as well. That's a whole nother, before, as you and I probably have experienced, it's like we used to say, where did that come from? You know, like, did they just pull it out of the the air? Like this trend person was like, you know, like Karl Lagerfeld would say, it's now, you know, blah, 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 is the new, you know, uh, Navy is the new black or, you know, whatever. But there really, really is a psychology, but there are more tools to use today as well. So you shop all the resources that are out there at the ground level, but that's what's happening today. So how do you predict what's going to happen tomorrow? So there is a historical part of that, but really the major thing is like, what's the mindset happening out there? Where is the economy trending? What are people doing? Is there more travel influences happening? Is there, because it's the stay at home, people are updating their homes, you know, what does that mean for the apparel industry? As we talked about, or even things like running shoes. I worked oh, for a, hello. I worked on a consulting engagement with a running shoe manufacturer and visited all their factories in China and Vietnam. And I was astonished at the different kind of textiles that get put on your running shoes. I mean, this year it may be, you know, the popular style is pink and black and next year it might be gray and blue and, you know, with embossing and, you know, all sorts of interesting things. On, and you don't really think about running shoes as being textiles, but there's a lot of textiles in them and following trends as well. And I'll just add to that, not only for running shoes, but everything else, you know, the running shoe industry has done an amazing job on the sustainability side as well. 
So every pair of trainers, you know, as they say, or sneakers, whatever, that I have bought recently have all been using recycled materials. You know, if you look at all birds using Tencel, Vija, I don't know if I'm saying it right, V-E-J-A, Vija from Brazil, they're using, you know, recycled, you know, rubber. They are using the faux suede products. Everything's washable, everything. And the same thing is happening with apparel. So there's so much new technology happening in textiles that focuses on all our thoughts about climate change. What are we doing, you know, from circularity and how to reduce our waste to making sure that, so when we talk about traceability and transparency, it's great, you know, you're making sure where all the product comes from, but by the way, where does the product start from? So, you know, are we really being thoughtful in the yarn choices, in the weaving choices, in the processes of making that from water, making sure we're not using excessive you know, resources such as water and our carbon footprint, all of those things. So that's the new foundation for sourcing today is how much of my product can be sustainable because that's what the generation that's not just the generation, it's my generation too. Everything I'm trying to buy today, I'm trying to make sure it has a longer life shelf and it can be recycled in some way. Since we were talking about textiles, I'll just also mention that there are companies out there that have been working on and succeeding at taking garments that are at the end of their life cycle and being able to separate the actual fibers. So you can take a cotton and a combination of something else and you're able to take the cotton fibers out and the other fibers out, and then you can recycle those fibers. There are companies that are working on we talked previously, you know, in our other chats about, you know, what's new and innovative. So some of it has to do with the using of, say, there's a company out there that's working on using volcanic ash to actually do the heat technology, you know, so you can have a garment that this volcanic ash is infused, you know, into the fiber so that you can control the temperature. So whether you're home or you're doing some activity, it's cooling, it's heat, it's all of this, you know, special finishes and additives that are now being put into textiles that are really the new innovative. So using sustainable fibers, and then what else can you attributes can we insert into these fibers and textiles that will make for, you know, the next new and innovative products that are out there. So that's what's happening. So Eileen, This is fantastic. It's been really interesting. I really appreciate it. Just to wrap up then, can you give us the information about the trade shows as well as your contact information? Absolutely. So thanks so much again for having me. And we will be in Los Angeles next week at the LA Textile Show. This is the first time TextWorld NYC is collaborating in Los Angeles. We're so excited. They actually were at our show this past July. So we know that there's a great opportunity, you know, for us to collaborate cross coast, you know. So the LA show next week starts on Wednesday, September 29th finishes up on Friday afternoon, October 1st. I will be there with our show director, Jennifer Bacon. We both can be reached. I'll give you my email. It's eileen.small at textworldusa.com. And Jennifer's is jennifer.bacon at usa.mesafrankfurt.com. So that's our contact information. Our website is www.textworldnyc.com. There you can go on and find all of our upcoming information. Our next show in New York City 
is going to be in person. We're excited. Our show in July was in person as well for attendees, but not really for exhibitors. We had some local exhibitors in. We are hoping that come January, which is January 25th through the 27th, 2022, we are hoping that, you know, we'll be able to see some of our friends from the Far East that things have opened up. But if not, We are still cultivating our local resources, including our Far East friends who have local offices here in the States, especially in New York City, where they can come and bring their product. If not, again, we will be having what we had in July, which is our sourcing showroom. All of our exhibitors that participate will be sending in products, both for textiles and apparel, which we are curating with Doniger, which is the trend service that we have been collaborating with for the past two years. They do the trends at our show and we collaborate with them to set up this sourcing library. So as an attendee, you can come in. We have things curated both by country and by quality, by category. So you can come in and source. Everything is QR coded, which is very innovative for us because everything in a normal booth is just take a look, tell the person in the booth what you're looking for. They'll write your name down, et cetera. But so this is much more and more high tech this time. So we will have that as well. So even if we have local exhibitors there, we will still have this sourcing library because we know not everyone can travel that would like to travel. So it'll be a combination of a hybrid event, which we're very excited about going forward. So let's see, you know, as the world opens up, we're excited. Trade shows are still really important for this reason. Again, the world used to be a lot bigger place and it's a little smaller now with everyone, you know, having resources at their fingertips, both digitally and sort of in person. But trade shows really bring the resources to those in the apparel and textile sector who are not able to travel. You know, jobs have been consolidated. People are working really tough these days. So, you know, it really is advantageous to come out to our particular and, you know, in the textile trade shows to see what's happening from a trend standpoint and to also be able to touch feel, see, and communicate with the sourcing. So that's my pitch. (laughs) Thank you so much, Eileen. It's just fascinating. I really appreciate it. And, you know, hopefully we can drum up some business for you. You can listen to more podcasts on the Women in Manufacturing website. It's www.womenandmfg.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website, www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.